Well, good morning again, everyone. If you've got a physical Bible, please keep Micah chapter 3 open. That's where we're going to be spending our time. Um, and also grab your um, service sheet because there's a sermon outline in there that you might like to follow. While you're getting that out, let me ask you this question. Do you consider yourself to be powerful? Do you consider yourself to be powerful? Your answer is going to be relative, of course, isn't it? Powerful compared to what? Or perhaps even personal, powerful compared to whom? Um, And your answer is also going to need a context, isn't it? Uh, I might have power in one situation, but not in another. Uh, So, for example, formal power is pretty easy to spot, isn't it? Um, A police officer has formal power to enforce the law. Um, Related but slightly different, a school teacher, you might say, has positional authority. Um, Or at least they would hope so. But when a student runs into a teacher in the supermarket, it's a different situation, isn't it? That's informal power. The teacher still has power, but it's less formal. Um, They're harder to spot informal power, but it's no less real. Children have informal power, and I'd say lots of it, wouldn't you? The marketers call it pester power. It's worth billions to our national economy. I'm a victim of pester power. I'm probably a perpetrator too. Maybe you are as well. Actually, and you mightn't believe me, but you have power. Power over others. Now, in itself, that's no huge revelation, and it's certainly not a problem. But the question raised by Micah 3 is how do we use our power? That's the critical issue here. For whose benefit do we use the power that we possess? Now, in Micah's context, the nation was burdened with this trifecta of dodgy leaders, of crooked priests, and, well, the prophets too, who are corrupt. It's a pretty awful situation because in context and in combination, these leaders ruthlessly oppress God's people. To which God responds with a heavy word of judgment. Micah chapter 3 would have to rank alongside some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. God is outraged in Micah chapter 3 and it's important to pinpoint why. What is it that makes him so angry? Because I'm convinced that if we can isolate the reason for God's intense reaction here, if we can do that, then we'll find actually what it is that God loves. What does he love? As we see God rise up in defence of his oppressed people. I'm going to pray and then we're going to take a closer look at this chapter. So why don't you join me as I do that? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this word and we pray for your spirit to guide us in all truth and to expose us to your loving authority that we might be transformed to be more like Jesus. And we ask that in his name. Amen. You can see on the outline, just two points for today, outrageous injustice and God's rage for justice. Uh, I encouraged you a couple of weeks ago as we began our series in Micah to fasten your seatbelts and Micah chapter 3 is the reason why, or at least one of them anyway, because it is full of outrageous injustice. Verses 1 to 4, 5 to 8 and 9 to 12, they all follow the same pattern. Each section includes an address to a particular group of people, leaders, prophets, priests. And after the address, you get an accusation. That is, what have they done wrong? What's their crime? 
Who are we talking to? What have they done? And then finally, there's a word of judgment that is declared. I might summarise it like this. Through Micah, God takes aim at Israel's elite and he does not miss. Verse 1, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? Now, Jacob and Israel, they're two ways of referring to the same thing. God is addressing the national leadership. It's not quite the same thing, but in our terms, we might think of this as the political class. These are the leaders who are responsible for administering law and order. In other words, people with considerable power and privilege. Should you not embrace justice? That's the rhetorical question. The expected answer is yes. But the question in context takes on something of an accusation. These leaders should embrace justice. The nation of Israel was meant to be a showcase to the nations of God's wisdom, his power, his beauty and his love, but you leaders who hate good and love evil. Oh, that escalated quickly, didn't it? And Micah's just getting started. You can see why the prophets were often killed as they address the leaders of the nation like this. These leaders demonstrate the complete opposite of what God desires. Using the law and their political power to promote their own self-interest and in so doing willfully crushing the average man on the street. And they do it without a care in the world. Verse 2, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh and strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. You're not going to find this in the Sunday school curriculum, are you? With good reason. Now, this is not literal cannibalism. This is a word picture. It's deliberately graphic. But Micah isn't plucking this imagery out of thin air. This isn't the result of a disturbed imagination, though this is disturbing. The Assyrian army that's to the north of Israel They currently occupy all of the cities surrounding Jerusalem. They are the superpower of the era and they would occasionally skin prisoners alive to deter people from stepping out of line. And Micah picks up on exactly that imagery and accuses Israel's leadership, metaphorically, of treating their own people in much the same way. At which point we start to see the beginning of God's rage. His rage for justice. Did you notice, and this is just so important for understanding God's anger here. Did you notice who is being oppressed by these leaders? Yes, it's God's people, but we can be more specific. Look at verse 2. These leaders who tear the skin from my people. They eat the flesh of my people. Verse 5, the prophets lead my people astray. This is personal for God. In their desire for selfish gain, these leaders, these prophets, these priests, they make a powerful enemy, but they are still so self-absorbed that they think they can get away with it. 
But they've miscalculated badly. God is outraged. I could take you to any number of passages where Israel would pray for a king as they are installed for the nation. What sort of things would the nation ask God for the king to do? Well, Psalm 82, here's one example. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. And deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is what the king, the small M Messiah of the nation was to do. This was his task. But here, instead of the weak being defended, the leaders of Israel, they crush God's people. Verse 9, they despise justice, they distort the law, and they ruthlessly steal land from already vulnerable people. But sadly, this kind of leadership is hardly unique to ancient Israel, is it? I did a Google search this week looking for the world's most notoriously corrupt leaders. It was a cheerful kind of search. I'll tell you what I came up with. A list of the top ten most corrupt leaders of modern history. And without exception, every one of them came from what we might politely call a developing nation. Poor countries, in other words. Now what does that mean? It means that the fortunes these people amassed corruptly... Where did it come from? It came from already vulnerable people, those who could least afford it. But before we point the finger of judgment at money-hungry leaders in relatively obscure nations like Nicaragua, I mean, that makes us feel better, doesn't it? Especially if we accompany that with a few angry posts on Facebook to advertise our anger. But before we do that, doesn't the same thing happen in Australia? Vulnerable people exploited by powerful political elites and their corporate friends in high places. Ask yourself, where are poker machines most concentrated in New South Wales? Do you find them in suburbs where incomes display what? High disposable income? No. Canterbury, Bankstown, the Central Coast, Fairfield. They're the top three in our state. Hardly, no disrespect intended, but hardly places with high disposable incomes. In 2018, clubs from just these three areas produced almost half a billion dollars in poker machine profit alone, of which over a hundred million dollars went back to the New South Wales government. All of this is done in plain sight. You can pull these figures off the internet. There's no secret. But here's the thing. Even if we're not, I reckon God is outraged by this kind of thing. We're already vulnerable people, people who are already, in many cases, socially disadvantaged, being exploited. And that's why we we can't outsource our compassion to our elected officials because they're just too fickle. It's why we must act to support some of our mission agencies like Anglicare locally or Anglican Aid internationally or Open Doors who support the oppressed church. As for the leaders of Israel, having refused to listen to the cries of God's people, God stops listening to them. He won't listen, verse 4, when disaster strikes. Then they, that is the leaders, will cry out to the Lord, but he won't answer them. At that time, he'll hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. It's the same for the prophets. 
They lead my people astray, verse 5, offering favourable news so long as the money keeps flowing, everything's okay, you're just fine, sin doesn't matter, God understands, God loves you just the way you are. Well, since the prophets won't listen, God stops speaking. And when disaster comes, they will receive no answer. And you might think, well, gosh, God turning his face away, not answering, that doesn't sound like much of a judgment. Until you realise that, well, what is hell? It's the absence of God's blessing, isn't it? It's his face turned away from you in wrath. Micah wants us to understand there's no getting away with it here. This whole chapter serves as a warning and especially so. For those of us with power, we see Micah rise up on God's behalf. As for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might. For what purpose? To declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Prophets of Israel wouldn't dare speak like this because that would ruin business. It's about this point sometimes I've had people object. They say, look, you know what, I just prefer the God of the New Testament. Because in their minds, Jesus is all about love and forgiveness and harmony, whereas the God of the Old Testament, well, what is he? He probably needs to double his medication or something like that. I wonder if such people have ever listened to Jesus take on the national leadership of Israel. Have a listen to meek and mild little Jesus, no crying he makes, Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You pay tithes of mint and dill and cumin, but you've disregarded the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. I reckon you could take these words from Jesus and put them straight into the mouth of Micah and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It seriously misrepresents Jesus to think he's strong on love but soft on justice. If anyone practices justice, it's the Lord Jesus who bears the weight of our sin at the cross. What does that mean? It means that he is more committed to justice than you and I will ever be. It also means that neither Micah nor Jesus will allow us to have a soft, or sentimental view of God. God is angry in Micah 3 and with good reason after centuries of disobedience. God's patience has come to an end. He rises up. His people are being abused, willfully so, by leaders who think that they can do what they like and then presume upon God's protection. Ask yourself this question. What would it say about God's integrity? if he knew all this was happening and then let it slide. That's not love. And that's not a God that we ought to worship. God is angry with good reason. And one of the implications of Micah chapter 3 is that God's people need to reflect carefully how we use our power. As parents... Managers, consultants, directors, teachers and so on. For whose benefit do we exercise power? God cares how we use our power. And at the personal level, another implication of Micah chapter 3 
would be to assess our personal attitude to sin. It's a big error to think, like Israel's leaders, that we can continue living however we like while presuming upon the safety net of God's forgiveness. That is a big mistake. Yes, Jesus offers free and full forgiveness to anyone who humble themselves and come to him. That is absolutely true and wonderfully so. But Jesus calls us to what? To repent. That is to turn away. To, in the old language, to, to put to death the evil that's in our life and with the prompting of the Holy Spirit to say no to ungodliness. Now in that passage from Mark 10, we heard how Jesus uses his power. Here is the one that created heaven and earth. How does he use his power? Well, it comes up in the context of a pretty ugly discussion around ambition. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What a contrast to the self-serving leadership that Micah was forced to confront. Where people exploit the weak for personal gain. Compare that to the Son of Man, who loves us enough to tell us the truth about our sin, like any good prophet should. But at the same time, laying down his life in order to pay for our sin. There is justice and there is mercy. A self-giving pattern for using power. One that pleases our Lord. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we do pause to humble ourselves before this heavy word. Father, we pray that as your spirit exposes those parts of our life that need to change, would you give us the grace to respond in faith and obedience. But we also want to praise you for your character, that you are angry when your people are oppressed, that you defend your people. And so, Father, would you enable us to have the wisdom to know how to use our power rightly, following the self-giving love of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray.